Welcome to this episode in the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Justin Burke, the 2022 Thorley Fellow at the Lowy Institute in Sydney and CSIS in Washington DC, and a PhD candidate at Macquarie University. Between 1985 and 1997, Australia undertook its second largest warship construction program, and arguably one of its most successful. 22 uh, Pacific-class patrol boats were constructed, not for the Royal Australian Navy, but for 12 military, coast guard and police forces of South Pacific countries. They were also known as the Pacific Patrol Boats. In this, and the next podcast, an expert panel will discuss this program and the efforts to provide effective maritime surveillance and fisheries protection. In the first episode, we will discuss the original idea for the Pacific Patrol Boats, and their design and construction. In the second podcast, we will discuss how they fared. To tell this story and the ongoing legacy, I'm joined by Commodore Jack McCaffrey, who was a naval aviator. Currently, he is a visiting fellow at both the University of Wollongong and University of New South Wales in Canberra at the Defence Academy. He co-authored Wings of Gold, the story of Australian pilots and observers who trained with the US Navy 1966 to 68, and he is currently writing a history of the Pacific Patrol Boat Program for the Navy. Mr. Jim Knuckles, who had a long career in strategic policy areas of defence, both in Australia and Papua New Guinea, he was closely involved in the development of the Pacific Patrol Boat Program. Captain Andrew McKinnon, who was the Pacific Patrol Boat Program Project Director, during the design, finalisation and early construction years, and later he was director of the Southwest Pacific Section in the International Policy Division in Defence, where he helped establish the vessels in the recipient countries. And last but not least, Commander Darrell Neild, who also served as the project director for the Pacific Patrol Boat Program. Thank you all for joining me. First of all, let's set the scene, Jim Knuckles. What was behind the decision to develop the Pacific Patrol Boat Program? Was it an Australian initiative or did it come from the Pacific Island countries themselves? Well, Justin, to understand the, the background of the Pacific Patrol Boat Project, you really have to understand the strategic environment that Australia was in in the 1970s. At that stage, we were moving from PNG, and there's an excellent podcast we did in this series, I think it was season three, uh, episode four, where we talked about the development of the PNGDF maritime element. So, But in by the 1970s, mid-1970s, Australia felt that we were safe in our region, that uh, we had a, a strategic review of our capabilities in 1973, and we said, basically, there's no special need to be made for military operations in Australia. And that was, of course, because the United Kingdom still had a significant presence in our region, and the United States was the major winning force in the Pacific War. Well, that all came to a very quick end by the mid-70s because the UK said, well, we're leaving east of Suez, goodbye, Australia, we'll see you. And uh, the United States enunciated what was known as the Guam or the Nixon Doctrine, which basically said, you guys have got to do something, we're not going to be looking after you forever. And so all of a sudden, we found ourselves in a different world, 
what were we to do? A, a lot in parallel with, some would suggest, what's happening in the Pacific today when we turn around and discover things are a little bit different. So that led to a focus on our need to be more self-reliant, and we then produced a thing called the 1976 Def Defence White Paper, which all of a sudden we said, we've got to look after ourselves in the region, we've got to be able to look after our own defence, and that's going to be very, very important. And equally, our area of direct military interest, all of a sudden, we said, was basically 10% of the world's uh, surface area. It was from, you know, the Indian Ocean in the west to the far Pacific in the east to Southeast Asia to the north to Antarctica in the south. And all of a sudden, this was a whopping great, basically maritime environment. So we began to look at how we might develop a, a capability in that area and we began to focus on our region. Um, so all of this really was more frightening when in 1976 we discovered that uh, the Soviet Union had established diplomatic relations with the Kingdom of Tonga and the reports were coming out that they were going to establish a mission, build an international airport, have you heard that before? Uh, set up permanent fishing bases, have you heard that before? Uh, now, subsequently, none of this happened. Uh, anecdotally, uh, the Soviet ambassador apparently put these proposals to the King of Tonga, who fell asleep during the meeting, and when he subsequently woke up, he said no. So the Russians then went off, and we didn't have Russian bases. But the parallels, of course, with Chinese interest in the South Pacific are very, very, very clear. But the other worrying thing was the, the Soviets were looking at doing the same thing in, in, um, in Samoa. They were increasing their diplomatic activities across the whole of the South Pacific and massive Soviet interest in hydrographic and other research was coming out of Vladivostok as their ships were coming down, taking hydrographic readings, looking at potential submarine routes into our area of prime strategic concern, the South Pacific. Now, all of this was happening and worrying defence planners and, and the services in terms of capabilities and what we might require. And at the same time, there was this thing called the United Nations uh, uh, Convention on the Law C developing. And this was going to establish clearly who was responsible for the waters around their countries, where their uh, national boundaries lay within uh, their uh, immediate area, but also the area in the uh, surrounding seas for which they had sovereign responsibility. And that was coming to the fore, and, and we began to worry about, well, what did all that mean? Where, where were we going to go with all of this? Um, so it, it seemed to us in, in the Strategic and International Policy Division of the Department of Defence, which was a quite a new creature, but had an interesting new composition for defence policy. It had service personnel seconded to the division, so we had an Army, Navy and Air Force senior officer as part of that. And we began talking about what all of this meant. And the outcome of a lot of discussion and a lot of argy-bargying amongst the government agencies was that the Department of Defence would sponsor a thing called the Australia-New Zealand Civil Coastal Surveillance Team, jokingly called the ANCASAT, and we would go out and we would report on each small Pacific Island country's capability to manage its uh, resources zone and, and how it might enforce it. 
And this was very, very important, we saw, because it would help them understand the environment and help us understand what potentials there might be for Australian assistance of some sort. So in 1980, we took a caribou, kindly provided by the RAF, filled it with a motley range of people, an Australian naval officer, New Zealand naval officer, uh, Australian fisheries officers, Australian coastal surveillance experts and myself, and off we went around the Pacific uh, with a couple of engines in the middle of the aircraft and hoping nothing would break down on these very remote airstrips, and we reviewed what each country did or didn't have. We presented a report to them and walk them through the challenges they had. And, of course, they all held their heads because they weren't really aware of what all this meant. So we went home, and our informal discussions in the Rattley aircraft on the way back was, geez, they got a problem. What's the biggest challenge they have? And we all thought it was that they had no capacity to actually enforce anything in these massive waters around these countries. So that was something that was going to be of prime concern to them. So those recommendations then really fitted in with some things happening within defence where the international part of the Strategic and International Policy Division was expanding our defence cooperation program beyond what had then been the Southeast Asian region, which was historically where the threat was coming from militarily, and we were looking at moving more into the Pacific. And so I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for us to move the Defence Cooperation Program into the Pacific and at the same time really make a useful contribution to helping Pacific countries protect their own zones. In addition, however, there was a very profound Australian long-term strategic interest in us being able to demonstrate within the region a strong maritime capability, support for these small countries and an ability for Australian naval personnel to be seen as a regular part of that strategic environment. So that all came together and a lot of work and discussion around in the department with various people. Sam Bateman, who sadly is no longer with us, but was a, one of the, the, was the naval officer in the International Policy Division area and we worked very closely together and we essentially said these countries need a boat, but it, it shouldn't be one built to military specs because that's the last thing they'd be able to support. So we struck on the three simplistic concepts of easy to operate, simple to maintain, and cheap to run. Now, there's a lot of water then going to go under the bridge with various naval uh, design experts and others, and some of folk after me are going to talk about that. But at the end of the day, we, we came up with a Pacific patrol boat concept, which we were able to show these countries would make a big difference. We then, though, had to sell it to government. Luckily, at that time, in 1983, uh, we were getting ready for a thing called the South Pacific Forum, which is an annual meeting of all of the Pacific Island countries to discuss regional issues. And the 1984 meeting was to be in Canberra, and the Australian Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, would be the principal coordinator of this. So I went with this bit of paper to Mr Hawke's office and said, Sir... We think this would be a good thing. And he said, expletives deleted. I agree wholeheartedly with you. And so in 1984, at the South Pacific Forum, the Prime Minister of Australia was able to announce an initiative which was embraced by all of the Pacific countries 
because they recognised through that earlier ANCASAT report that they had a long way to go and this was an ideal opportunity. Now, a lot of other water under the bridge, but I think that sort of situates it, hopefully, for other folk who are going to talk about some of the complexity of turning this wondrous plan into a thing that floated and actually could operate. Absolutely. Magisterial. Thank you, Jim. Fascinating. I'll turn now to Jack McCaffrey, if I may. Noting that this was an Australian initiative, how did the Pacific Island countries react to it? Did we make any attempt to determine what the individual country uh, needs were or wants were? And did they impact on the design? Oh, thanks, Justin. Um, I'll deal with uh, the design initially and then uh, I'll look at other aspects of their response and the, the very variable participation um, of different countries as, as time went on. Um, I won't go into design details because some of the other speakers are going to do that, but fair to say, though, that um, speed and armament uh, were two of the most contentious points for several of the countries that were potential uh, operators of the Pacific Patrol Boat. But uh, ultimately, the design was fixed um, here in, in Canberra, and I think uh, the Navy Director of Fleet Maintenance at the time, who I think was Captain Peter Deshano, was... Um, very much involved in doing that. But the decision was that there would be a common design uh, and that any variations to that design that we agreed to with any of the receiving countries uh, would have to be made after the vessels were built and they would be at the cost and, t and whatever time penalty was involved of the country that was receiving them. So essentially a common design and I think... It, Given the circumstances, it was probably the only realistic approach uh, in that tr trying to satisfy the varying demands of 12 different countries ultimately uh, would have been probably far too expensive. So ultimately then the design was fixed and it was clearly a compromise. Um, and to give an idea of some of the issues that, uh, that the people involved had to deal with, uh, Tonga, for example, um, wanted not uh, a, a long distance, long and high endurance uh, patrol craft. They wanted a fast response vessel. Oh, and by the way, with VIP accommodation for the king, please. Um, Fiji, um, they wanted something much larger. They really had their idea, I think, or their, their mindset on something like a frigate or a corvette, certainly one capable of operating a helicopter. And probably the mo most complex uh, country to deal with at the time uh, was Papua New Guinea. Um, the Papua New Guinea Defence Force had by then some experience of uh, operating our attack class patrol boats, so they wanted something bigger and better than that. And they also wanted six rather than the four that were being offered. But on the other hand, um, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Samari, wanted shark cats with radars. So you had two quite different approaches to the whole business. Um, as far as the actual participation and response of the different countries is concerned. Um, I think there are s several aspects to this. The first is that um, some of the smaller countries in particular, and I guess uh, Tuvalu, Cook Islands, Kiribati come to mind, um, were not at all confident that they could support uh, the boats financially in particular, um, especially after our, our initial support package uh, was set to uh, dry up. And I think some of the early estimates were that uh, the boats would cost in the order of about $200,000 Australian per year to run. Um, and that may not sound much, but to the economies of some of these small countries, uh, it was a lot. Uh, Tuvalu, for example, a population of more than no more than about 10,000 people. 
Um, the smaller countries also, as I think was already mentioned uh, briefly by Jim, lacked a lot of the infrastructure necessary to support these boats. Um, some didn't even have wharves uh, or workshops uh, that were up, up to the mark at all. Likewise, um, many of them lacked um, trained technical workforce in, in a general sense, let alone um, specifically for patrol boats. And most of the countries too lacked any kind of operational expertise. Um, politics was another issue that uh, that um, intruded. Um, and as I, as I mentioned, Papua New Guinea Defence Force wanted something more than, uh, more advanced than the the old attack class. And there was a lot of ill feeling generated um, within the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, not least by um, the response of one of the unsuccessful tenderers for the boat uh, that was bad mouthing uh, the, the winning um, uh, design. Um, Samoa, for example, wanted Australia to pay not just the first two years of support um, for the boat, but five years of support. Um, and the Solomons um, were probably the most enthusiastic of any country involved. They, they were desperate for, for patrol boats and they, in fact, were looking elsewhere as well for interim solutions until such time as the, the Pacific patrol boat would emerge. Um, Fiji um, was an in and out and there was a lot of internal political um, uh, toing and froing in Fiji over the whole project and of course it was very much impacted on then by the 1987 coup which put an end to it uh, at least temporarily as far as we were concerned and both um, Papua New Guinea and Fiji were very much unhappy uh, at the lack of input they had to the ultimate design um, but as, as Jim has mentioned um, he mentioned the ANCSAT team that went out. There were several other teams sent out to the various um, potential operating countries at different times, again, mixed teams of, of uniform and civilians to help explain what was going on and to talk about um, differences and difficulties over design and, and other aspects of the program. But ultimately, they, through cajoling, they, they ultimately convinced 12 of the countries to sign up to the 22 boats and, in fact, um, probably a, 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 an interesting little aside is that the last of the boats, the 22nd, was the third to the um, Federated States of Micronesia. And um, that was one more than they were actually allocated. And when they applied for the third one, the condition that uh, the Australian government put on it was that their, that their government would have to contribute something towards the cost, which they did do. Mm, fantastic. Thank you, Jack. Turning now to Andy McKinnon. In its final form, what did the, the Pacific Patrol Boat Program entail and what was the nature of Australia's initial investment in it? Thanks, Justin. Uh, well, I'll expand a little on the, with some more detail on, on the previous two speakers. Um, when the Pacific Patrol Boat Design and Construction Contract was awarded in, uh, announced by Minister Beasley in May 1985, it was to provide a multi-purpose vessel with, which island nations could use for surveillance and enforcement of their exclusive economic zones. Um, they could also be used, of course, for police work, immigration, quarantine, search and rescue, and potentially disaster relief. But the key features at that stage in 1985 were that the shipbuilder would design and construct the vessels and provide two years support package with operational and technical training. The Royal Australian Navy would provide training, long-term in-country advisory assistance where required and operationally manage the project. 
New Zealand would provide some assistance yet to be defined and negotiated, and the participating countries would provide national infrastructure, wharves, headquarters, surveillance administration systems, etc., and meet all the operating and support costs. And the program was, at that stage, in 1985, expected to consist of 10 boats. Essentially, the patrol boat design consisted of a 31-and-a-half-metre vessel with a hull form based on a Dutch trawler. It's interesting to note that the the head of the company who won the contract um, was himself a Dutchman, so one wonders where he sourced the design. The hull was steel with an aluminium superstructure explosively bonded to the deck, uh, and while that was not acknowledged as being heavier than an all-aluminium ship, the steel hull was deliberately selected because it was sturdier and could be more easily repaired in remote and modest engineering facilities in the region if it, if it suffered damage. The Petrobat had a designed range of 2,500 uh, nautical miles at 12 knots, a sprint capability of 20 knots, and light armament. Um, and it was well suited for use by Pacific Island nations to monitor and police their exclusive economic zones, notwithstanding uh, the comments made by uh, 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 Jack earlier um, in terms of the numbers of people, uh, countries that didn't uh, fully support the concept. A key feature of the design was regional supportability. The Caterpillar main engines and diesel generators were selected because they could be more readily supported through the company's extensive network of agents and, and its supply chains throughout the region. Similarly, the uh, patrol boat's commercial radar, uh, codan radio equipment, echo sounder and other components were equally well supportable in the region where the needs of commercial vessels also had to be catered for. Weaponry, uh, and Jack touched on this a little, depended on whether the vessels would be operated by a defence force, in which case they had a forward-mounted 20mm gun, or by police forces who were only provided with a 50 calibre machine gun. Now, there were various changes to this concept of how this was be, to be delivered and supported along the way, uh, not least, as Jack again mentioned, to, due to the ability of some potential participants to meet the operating costs envisaged. But after some hiatus over the P&G involvement, by late 1985, the contract was valued at $19.2 million for seven boats, while the total project cost, including crew training, Royal Australian Navy advisors, management costs, etc., was $32.2 million in 1985 prices. By September 1986, the project consisted of eight vessels, four for Papua New Guinea, one to Vanuatu, one to Western Samoa, one to the Solomon Islands and one to the Cook Islands. And contract amendments were also underway for Fiji to enter the program taking four boats at a new cost of $36.5 million. But you asked about the final form, which was different in many ways from how it was initially envisaged. And I'm sure we'll go on to that in more detail later, but not least was the fact 
that other nations sought to join as they saw the benefits of the program. Fiji's involvement was suspended after the 1987 coup, then reinstated. Other countries filled the production line in the interim, including the Federated States of Micronesia and the Marshall Islands. So by late 1988, the budget for 12 boats was 61.747 million in April 88 prices. By November 91, the contract had risen to 15 boats at 91.5 million. More countries still sought to join and the contract was varied to allow for a further five vessels at a total cost of $137.981 million. This included boats for Kiribati, Tuvalu and Palau. Ultimately, 22 vessels were produced for a total of 12 nations at a reported total project cost of $155.25 million. The last boat was handed over to the Federated States of Micronesia in May 97, uh, precisely 10 years after the handover of the first trial to Papua New Guinea. So I think I might draw there. Fantastic. Thank you, Andy. Turning now to Daryl Neald, uh, can I ask how was the design of the eventual Pacific Patrol boat developed and to what extent did the recipient countries have a say in it? Yeah, thanks, Jason. Um, it was really interesting uh, to go out there and sit down with the countries and explain what they're getting uh, and ask what they wanted. Um, and to hear their answers was, was sometimes uh, a little bit overpowering. Um, like in Tonga, because they had a, a maritime element of the Tongan Defence Service, um, the Crown Prince wanted... Um, a major hydrographic uh, capability so he could search the seabeds for um, minerals and that on the seabed. He also wanted a, a very uh, extensive medical centre on board, one of them, and of course one had to be fitted out for the King of Tonga. Uh, we worked all around that and uh, yes, they did get the hydrographic uh, capability, and they also got um, a better medical system set up in the officer's mess. Um, P&G wanted uh, free metals. Uh, they were set on to have free metals. And, of course, we didn't want them to go that way, so lots of negotiation went on, and Andy was involved in that uh, to get them to come away from second-hand free metals as they came off the Royal Australian Navy um, um, line, uh, and you know we didn't want to hand them a second um, hand boat. Um, and the uh, Federated States of Micronesia and the Marshall Islands were very keen to get uh, a vessel the same as the American Coast Guard cutters, and that was to our advantage because the American Coast Guard cutters had exactly the same engines in them as the Pacific patrol boats. And the advisors in country used that uh, capability when the Coast Guard cutters visited uh, to do maintenance and pick up spare parts for their boats. But it was a brilliant program, uh, good, tough, designed uh, hull, easy to maintain as 
two people have said, each ship went with a container of spare parts and uh, also went with two spare propellers, two shafts and two spare rudders. During their time, uh, I recorded seven groundings. One of them, the crew, had, um, had left the ship. They'd gone into the life raft. And one of our technical advisors on board, a chief petty officer engineer, uh, in fact, gave them the option to get back on board and save the vessel. And he uh, supervised the shoring up of the hole in the hull and getting that boat back to its main port, then eventually getting it to Cairns for a refit. Um, Training was a major challenge. We were taking crew from all walks of life in their nation and introducing to uh, the systems of those patrol boats. The Australian Maritime Search Organisation was a centre of excellence. When I find this, uh, when I signed the first contract with them, they were doing one course for defence. Within four years, they were doing 22 Pacific patrol boat courses, some of those up to up to 22 weeks long. Another fantastic success was having advisors in country. Having a lieutenant commander with patrol boat experience and chief petty officer engineering and a chief petty officer or petty officer electrical well, and they're still there now with the new patrol boats. We had an excellent follow-on support organisation that was set up by Andy and uh, Captain Bill Overton and run by an ex-naval officer, Harry Warnick, and that headquarters was established in, in Brisbane and they looked after all the uh, technical part of the patrol boats, advice, logistics uh, uh, support, and when the boats wanted, when the nations wanted it, they would go out and supervise the administration of uh, the refits of the boats, whether, whether they were done in the Pacific. Of course, important part of it is publications. Each boat was supplied with 27 volumes of uh, technical information on their boats, and the follow-on support agency was directed to keep those, documents, those things up to date. And the Pacific Branch and the project staff, I had a brilliant team for nine years um, in uh, in the project office and the support by uh, the Pacific Branch and uh, uh, the people there, um, including uh, Andy McKinnon, uh, was wonderful. And we went on to build workshops and wharfage and surveillance centres and provide limited fuel and refits for these these boats. Maybe when I uh, did the um, did the uh, operational evaluation uh, of uh, one of the boats in the, in uh, Coburn Sound, uh, I probably shouldn't have given the commanding officer his command ticket after the operational readiness evaluation. Uh, his name was Frank Mayna Marama, <laughs> and, and maybe maybe if I didn't give him his command ticket, he wouldn't be prime minister <laughs> of. Um, of Fiji. When I called on him some time later uh, for a morning tea, uh, Frank running out the door and said, Daryl, uh, I'll be back. I'm going to Government House and the Chief of Staff will look after you. So I turned to the Chief of Staff and said, what's going on? Well, we're not sure whether Frank is a captain, a commodore uh, or, a, or a commander. And I said, 
pardon? And he said, well, he has to be promoted to rear admiral to take a job up in the UN. Um, and But we just found out he was never uh, gazetted as being promoted to a Commodore, which he's been wearing the rank for a year or so, or whether it weren't. And, of course, he's still a captain. Um, Frank never did get back from the... Uh, from Government House, but uh, he, he joined me later uh, over um, a, a very cool gin and tonic in Suva and explained the issues. It was very interesting. He didn't make uh, uh, a rear ammo because uh, he didn't get the job in the UN. But that uh, was just one of the great experiences. Another one was the uh, night before handover in the, in, in uh, Fremantle, uh, uh, we um, sat down with with the Prime Minister of that country, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and and other people, and, and of course represented by uh, the International Police Division, and the representative of government was would come for each handover, and I said to the Prime Minister of this nation, very small nation to the north of us, I said, Sir, do you have a suit? And he said, Do I need a suit? Uh, I said, yes, well, everyone else will be in suit and tie. Do you have one? He said, no. I said, I'll tell you, it was great fun trying to find a hire company for a suit for a very large Pacific Islander uh, on a Friday night, Saturday morning before the handover. So there were lots of fun things during the handovers. We used to use Sterling, HMA Sterling, Coburn Sound, to operate the boat during the operational workup. We used to do, uh, my team used to supervise the three week workup and then we'd give them uh, uh, operational readiness evaluation so they could sail at home. And um, I, I was going across the causeway, intercepted by the local ranger of Garden Island, and um, he, he um, threatened me that uh, he would kick the crew off Garden Island. I said, well, please explain what, what you're talking about. He said, oh, I caught him last night barbecuing a tamer uh, on the beach, uh, and of course, being a national park, that's totally against the rules, so I can ban them from the island. Well, I had to put out a directive straight away, no more tamers on the barbecue, gentlemen. Yeah, so we had a lot of fun. Lots of of colour. Who said Pacific Patrol boats were a dry topic? (laughs) Oh, they were marvellous. Thank you, Yeah, For nine years, I just loved it. And Um, and a a tamer, for our listeners, would you be able to describe that? Well, it's a a mini kangaroo that, that... Hops around Garden Island. Uh, it, it very much, very much like a little wallaby, and uh, very much the same as a quokka's. Fantastic. Uh, on um, on another island um, in, in in that area. That's great. Anyway, great. Yeah. Great. So, um, thank you, Daryl. And turning back to Jack, um, where were the Pacific Patrol boats ultimately built? Um, they were built uh, at Henderson in. WA, that is just south of Perth, by Australian Shipbuilding Industries, a, a, a smallish company that was set up um, in, the, in the 1960s to um, support and build vessels, both commercial and, and naval. Um, the company was ultimately taken over, first of all, I think, by Tenix later on, and then uh, BAE as well, I think, um, even later than that. Um, but um, that really doesn't tell the, the story. There was a, a lot of things went on, of course, before 
we got to where um, the ships were being built. Um, and the, the Navy's involvement in the whole process began in late 1983 um, when um, the Strategic and International Policy Division indicated that they needed uh, the work done. And it was, again, that director of fleet maintenance was the person in Navy who became most directly involved from about late 1983. Uh, and uh, the first involvement was to draft the acquisition strategy for the vessels. Now, um, there was a lot of unhappiness uh, within uh, the element of Navy that was involved in this at the time. Um, they complained that they didn't have enough information to, to move ahead on it. They lacked the people to, to do the job and they lacked time. Um, and time became a real issue because, uh, as we've already heard, um, Prime Minister Hawke uh, became extremely interested in the, the project and was insisting on some fairly um, ambitious uh, deadlines to get things done. But I think the unhappiness is probably uh, reflective of the the relationship that existed between the Navy and Defence Central back in those years, which was fairly adversarial, to say the best. Um, but by January 1984, the um, Patrol Craft Project Director had a statement of user requirements, which became the basis then for the request for tenders, which was put out later that year. Um, and that re request for tender was issued on the 22nd of August 1984, announced at the South Pacific Forum by uh, Prime Minister Hawke. But even as that formal process was going on then, um, several unsolicited proposals for the design were received. Um, for example, uh, NQEA from Queensland, North Queensland uh, engineers, they were proposing a re-engineering re of the, atta uh, the attack class patrol boats, which were then going out of service. Uh, the British company Yard um, made a proposal to directly to our aid agency, ADAB, um, and ASI, the, the company that actually did the final build, um, also proposed one of their other patrol boats, the P-150. Uh, and indeed, the, the Navy itself um, proposed a few uh, different options as well, including a simplified uh, Fremantle class. Um, they also looked at uh, the re-engineering of the attack class and nominated the P-150. Um, as has been mentioned before, boat numbers continued to fluctuate um, as we got to the point of... Um, uh, determining who was going to be the, the ultimate builder. Um, and by late 1984, it was up to 13. In February 1985, um, Defence, through the uh, Source Development Committee, decided who the builder would be, um, rejected six of the proposals that they had received, had serious concerns over a couple more, and uh, they selected ASI um, over two others that also had uh, conforming bids, and one of those was NQEA with what they called their Taipan, and another boat from ASI as well, um, the Wasp. As I think I hinted at uh, earlier on, um, the losers here um, badmouthed the ASI 315, especially in Papua New Guinea, um, after the uh, selection was made, uh, and, and that badmouthing really did have a significant effect on the way in which the Papua New Guinea Defence Force um, approached um, the Pacific Patrol Boat Program from there on. Um, as was mentioned already, I think, by, by Andy, the number of boats continued to fluctuate, uh, and indeed, at one point, the Navy was asked to take on any spares that might have emerged from the build process, and uh, the Navy looked at one point at using some of the, uh, if they did have to take them on, as survey motor launchers, for which, as it turned out, they were not really very suitable. 
Um, as we heard, the first boat, the Tarango, uh, was delivered in May 1987, and the final one, the Independence, in May 1997. Uh, as has already been pointed out, a very successful build program. Mm, terrific. Um, turning back to Andy McKinnon, can I ask, what sort of support did Australia provide for the commissioning crews of these boats? Well, initial RAN support essentially began a year or so before the nations received their boats through the provision, as has been talked about already, of the in-country operations advisors, uh, either a lieutenant commander seaman, uh, ideally with patrol boat experience, and, and technical advisors, one or two senior sailors with mechanical and or electrical backgrounds. They needed to be provided with housing and other support in their parent country. So there was a bit of a, a lead time involved in uh, preparing the crews. And they were vital in helping to set up the, three, up the support infrastructure and the necessary crew selection. Remember, only three of the participating countries effectively had a defence force of one sort or another, um, Papua New Guinea, Fiji and Tonga. Others were operated by police forces who in some cases had just a few members who'd been recruited with mariner skills. So these countries were faced with forming cohesive crews, turning some policemen into sailors uh, or former merchant sailors into policemen. Before they joined their boats, the crews were provided with training in Australia through essentially three sources. Firstly, there was a discrete training contract with the Australian Maritime College in Launceston uh, for technical and seamen crew members. That was preceded by an Australian familiarisation training course at, uh, at the School of Languages in Victoria, more or less a cultural awareness training before they started on their training courses. The Australian Maritime College provided a range of courses in marine technical, seamanship, firefighting, communications and management subjects. And importantly, and this is where it was uh, uh, very valuable, the project funded additional equipment at the Australian Maritime College, a Caterpillar main engine, a generator and a switchboard so that technical sailors could train on the exact same equipment as they would find in their boats. Secondly, when the time approached for them to move to Western Australia, and stand by their boats. Further familiarisation training was provided um, through application training at the Rockingham TAFE uh, in uh, Western Australia. Finally, training for officers um, was notably done by the Royal Australian Navy in Sydney at uh, HMAS Watson at the Navigation School. So. Uh, and, and there was another form of training which came a little bit later, and that was we brought a number of the officers from various countries together uh, to conduct surveillance courses which addressed training in a more regional context for a number of countries uh, and how they might operate their boats best to conduct surveillance and enforcement in their economic zones. Whilst... In Western Australia, the crews were accommodated at HMAS Stirling, the main naval base there, as Darrell's alluded to. Um, I wasn't aware that they were eating quokkas, but uh, <laughs> all those local arrangements were managed by two members of the project team permanently located in the shipyard. 
We had a seaman lieutenant commander who managed the operational aspects of trials, seagoing training and delivery, and a civilian technical officer involved in testing, certification, quality control and trials management. Importantly, these boats were not seen as naval vessels. Uh, thus, they were subject to certification by a commercial classification society, as they're known. In this case, it was Lloyd's Register. And following the handover, the formal handover of each, to each nation, each boat would undergo a shakedown and workup in Coburn Sound, which is where the shipyard was located, a reasonable amount of sea room to do most exercises that would be required. And the assigned in-country advisors were closely involved in that too. Um, this intense three-week seagoing training sought to ensure that all personnel on board were, were, were skilled in their, in their roles, uh, both technical, seamanship, and they were run through their paces with simulated um, evolutions and, and drills that uh, would prepare them for their voyage home. And finally, uh, before they departed, only a few days before, an operational readiness evaluation was conducted, as Daryl alluded to, by the project director to test the various facets of navigation, damage control, safety on board. And that certification provided assurance to the ship and to the fleet commander, the RAM fleet commander, that the vessels were ready for their long voyages to their home destinations. So it's quite a complex package of training that uh, we provided at, at the initial stages. I think we can talk later about the follow-on training that occurred. Bear in mind, though, that that training that I've just described then was repeated as crew members changed and as each country had to train up new crew members as others moved on. So this was not so much a one-off uh, exercise as one that would establish a pattern for the future training of all patrol boat crews throughout the region. Indeed, that takes me to my, my next and final question to Jim Knuckles, asking about the ongoing support for the program that Australia provided. How would you describe and characterise that briefly? Well, I think at the end of the day, it was to continue our commitment to support these regional countries in this crucial area of protecting national sovereignty. And I, I, I hear various comments about the tensions and difficulties of designing and building the boat. Fair enough, because I was very insistent that it had to be commercial and Lloyd's registered. And the general Navy mind at the time was of warships with the, the, the complex and sophisticated requirements. I had great support from Ad Admiral Oscar Hughes in that area who recognised that need. But more importantly, we had strong support from CNSs who recognised the fundamental value of having Australian naval personnel permanently placed in regional countries reflecting an Australian care and commitment. And a CNS is... Or, or, oh, sorry, Chief of the Naval Staff, the head, the head of the Navy, my apologies. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's important that despite all the issues and complexities of rushing a, a project through, building a design that wasn't necessarily people in the Navy weren't comfortable with, we all pulled together. Strong commitment from everybody. The p people you've talked so far showed that. And what we left behind was a continuing Australian presence. Those people then and now anchor 
Australian commitment and concern in the region. And the reflection of that was the boat was refitted life of time so many times I've lost count. And at the end of the day, not so many years ago, someone rang me up from Defence and said, Jim, we're going to build a new Pacific Patrol. How did you start doing the other one? And there they are. They're now out there again reflecting our Australian presence. And so not only is it a great project in terms of people building, developing, training and preparing, but it's also a great project in reflecting our continuing strategic interest and commitment to the South Pacific. Here, here. Thank you, Jim. Well, this sets the scene for next week's podcast on the operations of the 22 Pacific Patrol boats across the, across the Southwest Pacific. But before we go, uh, would each of the panel like to provide some concluding remarks on the origins of the Pacific Patrol boat program in order, uh, starting with Jim? Oh, look, I, th- I think it was that. It was a coming together of so many important factors our strategic awareness of a more complex environment where we had to commit ourselves to really defending the region. It also came at the time when the law of the sea gave us an opportunity to make a positive and practical contribution. It also came at an important time in the changing nature of the defence organisation per se, a growing commitment to the uh, joint activities, no longer single services, but a a commitment from everyone in defence to focus on the longer term strategic interest. And I think the people in the teams and everyone else pulled together to help strengthen and show that was the way ahead. And to you, Andy. Well, I thoroughly endorse uh, Jim's comments. I totally agree with what he said. I would like to draw out a couple of points, though, that um, about the initial design, which were not without shortcomings. Um, the initial propeller design was inadequate. And I say that because when we first went astern during the initial sea trials of the first boat, the propeller bent like a wilted poppy. Um, the fact that these were sourced from lips in Holland caused a significant delay of three months and compelled us to eventually source the propellers from a local company in Western Australia, which was good business for them. And that caused, apart from the three-month delay in handover, um, I learned that propeller design is an art form, not necessarily a science. We had to do various modifications to the main engine intakes on the patrol boat, which sucked spray into the engine room in large quantities in all but the calmest conditions. And finally, during the delivery voyages of the first two boats, obviously through the hot tropics, we learned that the lack of air conditioning in the design made them very uncomfortable in hot weather. So contract changes were needed to retrofit a system to the earlier boats and for this to be included in the standard design from boat five onwards. Uh, but great credit should go to the shipbuilder um, in all because all these uh, hurdles were were overcome. But to me, it was a salient lesson to see how contract price can creep up if the customer wants changes made after the design has been agreed and contracted. Mm. In my view, uh, finally, the contract with the Australian Maritime College in Launceston was an outstanding success, and the college did a superb job in caring for the needs of Pacific Island and trainee residents living for months in the cold Launceston climate. And I'm sure we're going to talk about it later, but the follow-on support contract was a linchpin to assist in keeping the boats operational in the region. Uh, I believe our next episode is going to touch on the significant Defence Cooperation Program funding uh, 
and project effort that was devoted to ensuring the various nations had the infrastructure and funding needed to support their vessels for the long term. Indeed. In my view, this was a very successful project. Fantastic. And a brief word from you, Daryl. Yes, it was a great project. Uh, it was outstanding, and uh, I had the privilege to be the project director for nine years. I had a wonderful team of people working for me in Canberra, in Western Australia, in Brisbane here, and uh, the advisors, I was virtually their divisional officer. So a lot of the advisors would bring me with their problems and concerns in country. Um, and, and, you know, that was marvellous, uh, that interaction. I had the privilege of, to be invited by the Pacific branch to go around the Pacific once or twice a year. And we had some wonderful experiences during that time. And... Uh, it, 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 was, it was just a wonderful success. And amazingly, the new boats that are being delivered at the moment, there's a team out in the Pacific looking at the problems that have developed in this new design. Believe it or not, one of them is air conditioning. You know, and we, you know we learn our lesson numerous times before we get it right. So uh, the National Police Division and project team um, are back out there uh, looking out how to fix the replacement boats. Placement boats are great, they're bigger, uh, very much the same type of equipment. In fact, in some ways, some of the nations are saying they're too complicated. But those things will sort themselves out. And uh, when we did the operational evaluation in Western Australia, it, I didn't tick everyone. I failed to, um, act, act, well, uh, potential commanding officers and sent them home and had to uh, ensure the executive officer to take over as the acting CO and um, get the boat home with, with advisors on board. Um, I was advised never to visit that country where I sent the two um, potential CEOs to uh, because there'd been payback put on my back. <laughs> uh, so I had meetings in Cairns instead of somewhere north of uh, Cairns. Well, those, uh, so those restrictions on your travel notwithstanding, Daryl, I, I hear the optimism you have for this program. And just turning to Jack for uh, the, the, the honour of the final, final word, I'm wondering whether you fall on the optimistic or, or somewhat qualified uh, end of the spectrum. Uh, no, by no means. Um, definitely uh, optimistic. It, I think it was an incredibly far-sighted um, program, uh, and uh, you know, congratulations really are uh, warranted for everybody that was concerned, especially those who dreamt it up in the first place and and saw it through to fruition. Um, and it has been successful on a, a number of fronts, not just operationally, but diplomatically as well uh, for, for this country as as well as for the other countries involved. I guess the one, one issue that um, but I've certainly come up uh, against, as I've been doing my own research for the book I'm trying to write on it, is that the, the gap that, that did build between um, our hopes that, that the program would become self-supporting, that the, the recipient countries would be able to manage financially and otherwise, uh, and, and the actual reality that for some it, 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 it did become just too difficult at times for them to be able to do that. And I guess that is something that we will explore in more detail next time. Absolutely. Well, sadly, today, that is all we have time for. My thanks to Jack McCaffrey, Daryl Neald, Jim Knockles and Andrew McKinnon. Today's podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group 
at the University of New South Wales, with the assistance of the university's Creative Media Unit. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode, please tell other people about the Australian Naval History podcast series. And goodbye for now.